morning. I'd like to ask you to turn to the book of Judges. That's in the Old Testament. That's in the clean part of your Bible. The part that cracks when you open it, out of which moths fly, pictures of the grandchildren and such. But that's the portion of the Bible that Paul said is inspired of God and is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness that the man and woman of God might be mature. Uh, It's the only Bible that Jesus and the apostles had in their possession. And uh, we we neglect it to our own peril, unfortunately. If you are having trouble finding judges, the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We refer to those books as the books of law. Those are Moses' books. The next book is Joshua, which is the story of the conquest of Canaan. We talked about uh, the book of Joshua a year or so ago. And it only makes sense now to look at the book of Judges. I saw a cartoon a few months ago depicting a clergyman addressing his uh, parishioners. And he, uh, the caption said, uh, I still believe in sin, I'm just not sure what qualifies. And it uh, struck me that that's very much the condition of our culture. That's the concern that we share. We still believe that there must be some rules, some limitations on human behavior. We're just not sure what qualifies. Is um, is adultery okay? Is gay good? Is teenage sex all right? How far uh, can we go? You know, we, we want some guidelines. We want some rules. We want a needle that says, this is north. We want a law of gravity that says, this is down. Uh, we want a map that will show us this is the right way. We're a little bit like children uh, in our ambivalence. You know, we don't like the rules, but uh, not knowing what the rules are unnerves us a bit. I, uh, I don't know how many of you saw 2020 last Friday night. There was an astonishing segment in there about uh, an Oregon rancher who abandoned his husband and wife in order to give his life to wild horses in North Dakota. And what was striking to me was Hugh Downs' reaction. I mean, he was, he was agog at the moral courage of this man to make this tragic moral choice to leave his family and go you know, go care for a bunch of horses. I was absolutely struck dumb. Some of you may have read the uh, article in the, in the Statesman, the syndicated article this past week about the new television series in which we're told that they have now broken the four-letter word barrier, you know, announced with all the bright-eyed excitement that sports announcers first uh, indicated that Roger Bannister had broken the four-minute mile. You know, it was just an incredible. Now we get to hear the English language trashed in living color in our living rooms, the privacy of our 
of our living rooms. This was announced as though this is the crowning achievement of the decade, which it may be for television. Uh, <laughs> I agree with Ernie Kovacs that medium is exactly the right term for television. It is neither rare nor well done. Um, There's this craziness that's pervaded our our culture. Uh, Chesterton long ago said that when when we leave sanctity, we leave our sanity. There really is a kind of moral craziness that's manifest, a manifest idiocy, really, about our about our culture. But uh, this is not the only time. That, uh, that this climate has prevailed. It was true in, in the period of the judges. Uh, political scandal, clergy scandal, murder, gang rape, violence. Cities known for their homosexual population. Uh, just the most incredible kind of evil took place during the period of the judges. And it's about this period that that the book is is written. Uh, the title Judges is a little bit misleading. The book has borne this name ever since the first English translations came out, but our English word judges does not signify what the Hebrew word shofet means. Uh, the word is found in other Semitic languages like Phoenician for a hero. You remember the movie My Hero? It's about that sort of heroic uh, character, someone that cares about little people, someone that's on the side of the underdog, someone that comes to deliver. The term's actually used that way in in the book of Judges. There's a very clear definition of the term in chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord raised up judges who delivered them. And uh, then the term is actually used of the Lord himself in Judges 11, 27. May the Lord, the judge, shofet. Judged today between the sons of Israel and the sons of Ammon. So we're really talking about heroic figures, not legal figures. When we think of a judge, we think of someone with a, you know, wigged out with a robe sitting behind a bench. Uh, but uh, the judges in the book of Judges are really not those sorts of judges. They were people that knew the difference between right and wrong to some extent and who set out to redress wrong wherever he or she uh, found it. We don't have any idea who the author is. The old uh, rabbis thought it was Samuel, and that may very well be. We do know that the writer was a prophet, someone who held prophetic credentials in Israel. Because this book is found not in a, some historical section of the book of the Old Testament, uh, in, in the old, uh, historical section of the Old Testament, but it's rather found in the section of the Bible that the Jews call the former prophets. Now, we have put the book of Judges in a historical section of our Bibles, following the Septuagint, the Greek versions. The Jews consider Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings as prophetic books, and they were so designated as, as former prophets, which meant that this, when this person writes, he is not writing mere history. He's telling us the meaning of history. He looks under the surface, into the heart of the nation, 
And that's what we'll see rather than history. Now, history buffs go wild over this book, you know, this morning. I, I started a, an explanation of what happened in an early per- period of Israel's history, and uh, my goodness, the Z's were uh, deafening. People started to fall out of their chairs and go to sleep. Two or three people came alive, you know, and they started to froth at the mouth. They thought this was great. But most people uh, were just totally bored. So I'm not going to do that to you this morning, hopefully. At least not in the way I did it to them. (laughs) But I want you to understand that this is not mere history. This book has to do with the meaning of history. The prophet gets down into the skin of the nation, and he shows us what's really going on. He shows us a part of the nation that we could not otherwise see except by revelation. Historians can't discover meaning in history. It has to be divinely disclosed. And that's what the prophet uh, does for us. We have no idea when it was written. Uh, Scholars uh, disagree. Some say early in the period of the monarchy during David's time. It's a possibility. Uh, If Samuel wrote the book, it would be very early in the monarchy, perhaps during Saul's reign. There are hints through the book that uh, the writer is looking back quite a distance on this period. He would say, for example, there was no king with the implication no king then in Israel like there is now. So certainly during the the period of the monarchy, maybe as late as the exile, because there's a reference later in the book, we'll we'll take a look at it in a few weeks, where the writer says that uh, a certain series of events uh, continued on into the period of captivity. So it could be as late as the exile, but we simply don't know. In my mind, it's uh, it's a non-issue. It doesn't matter. We do know when the judge is judged. Uh, there are a number of judges whose activities are described in the book. Uh, the first is Othniel. He begins to judge immediately after the conquest of the land, shortly after the death of, of Joshua in, in, in the early 14th century B.C., in, in my opinion. And the judges continued right up to the period of the monarchy. Samuel is the last judge, also a prophet, the one who anointed King Saul in the 11th century B.C. So you have a span of two or 300 years described here in, in the book. The period, the interval between the conquest of Canaan, which we talked about a year ago, and the period of the monarchy beginning with Saul and terminating in in the exile. Now, the first two chapters are something of an introduction, actually two introductions, both of which begin with the death of of, of, uh, Joshua. Verse 1, chapter 1, came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord. Then the writer goes back again to the death of Joshua in chapter 2, verses uh, verse 7. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Verse 8, then Joshua, the servant of the Lord, died. So he, he began, the, you have a, the same beginning point for both introductions. One runs from 1, 1 through 2, 5, the other from 2, 6. Through 223. The first introduction is pure history. Any historian uh, could report these events. The second introduction from uh, 26 through 23 is the prophet's insight into history. Now, here's where I put everybody under the pews this morning, and I don't want to do that again to you. But let me, let me just tell you what's going on here. There's a decided emphasis on the tribes of Judah. Judah looks very good. And I think there's a reason for this. 
Judah was the tribe from which the kings eventually came. We'll see why that's important later. We're told a number of times in the introduction that the Lord was with Judah. It came about after the death of Joshua that the sons of Israel inquired of the Lord, saying, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. And what follows is a description of a series of conquests of the land as Judah and Simeon, uh, her sister tribe to the south, moved southward through Canaan, capturing one city after another, Bezek. In verse 5, which is a little town just northwest of Jerusalem, they think, they're not sure. Jerusalem itself, verse 8, the sons of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, struck it with fire, burned it to the ground. It later was reoccupied by the Canaanites, who lived there well into David's time. Uh, They took the city of Hebron up in the high country in verse 10, then they took Debir, a bit to the south of Hebron. They took three of the cities of the Philistine Plain, verse 18, Judah took Gaza, Eshkelon, and Ekron. These were powerful Philistine strongholds. Verse 19, the Lord was with Judah. Uh, then in verses 22 and following, you have a description of the conquests of the Joseph tribes. The two sons of Joseph, Ephraim and Manasseh, were the heads of two separate tribes, which are often described. Described that way as the Joseph tribes. We're told that Joseph took Bethel. The Lord was with them. But in verse 27, Manasseh did not take possession of Beit Shan, Ta'anak, Iblim, or Megiddo. Neither did Ephraim, that's the other Joseph tribe, drive out Canaanites who were living in Gezer. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of Kitron. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko. Naphtali, verse 33, did not drive out the inhabitants of Beit Shemesh. I want you to notice something interesting about this description. Uh, The tribe of Judah engaged in, in battle, engaged a number of these cities in battle, and they conquered them. But after Joseph took the city of Bethel. There was not another city in Cana that was taken. First, we're told in verse 29 that the Canaanites lived among the Israelites. In other words, the Canaanites were in the minority. And then in verse 32, the Asherites lived among the Canaanites. The Canaanites were in the majority. And then in verse 34, the Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country. In other words, into the territory that belonged to Judah. So the Canaanites dominated the Israelites. Now the point of the author, and just simply tracing the history of of the people of God, is that the trend was definitely down. Judah did well. But after Judah's conquest, the Canaanites lived among the Israelites. Then the Israelites lived among the Canaanites. And finally the Canaanites took over and drove the Danites out of their possession. You see, you can see the direction that he's going. Historically, politically, militarily, the nation of Israel was in decline. And we say, why? Bad strategy. Uh, Philistines had an iron monopoly, we know that. Uh, what, why? Why was Israel in decline? Well, um, the Lord sent a messenger, chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal. Gilgal is where the ark was, to Bochim, 
word means weepings. And God said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land which I have sworn to your fathers. And I said, I'll never break my covenant with you. God's covenant was that he would be their God and they would be his people forever. He said, I'll never go back on that deal. But as for you, I said to you, you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed me. Therefore, I also said, I will not drive them out before you. In other words, Israel's military failure was the result of her moral failure. As Chesterton said of England during World War II, the cities of England were already morally bombed long before the enemy bombs fell. And that's what we find to be true of, of God's people living in the land of Canaan. They were morally bombed out long before they ever engaged the Canaanites in, in battle. We're told that in verse 4, when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to the sons of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they named the place Bohem, weepings. There they sacrificed to the Lord. Sounds very good. They um, rent their garments, and they wept, and they named the city appropriately enough weepings, but they did not rend their hearts. It's apparent from the history that, that follows, abundantly clear. They, as, as Paul would put it in 2 Corinthians 7, they, they were sorrowful, but it was not a sorrow that led to repentance, that led to salvation. Their sorrow was only superficial and short-lived and for themselves. They were just sorry that their sin had caught up with them. But there was no real desire to repent. Now we come to the second uh, introduction in the book, 2, 6 through 23, in which the prophet digs a little deeper. He goes to the heart of things. And he shows them precisely what's wrong. He begins again with the death of Joshua, points out that uh, there was a generation that saw the great work of the Lord, that is the events surrounding the Exodus and his care of Israel while they were in in the wilderness, the drying up of the uh, River Jordan, the the rapid conquest of portions of of the land of Canaan, the spirit of foolishness that God sent into the Canaanites that brought them out of their walled cities so that they could be defeated. But after that generation, another generation arose, according to verse 10, that did not know the Lord. Because, you see, uh, God's works are always non-repeatable. You couldn't repeat the conquest. You can't repeat the cross. You can't repeat the generation. Uh, You can't uh, repeat the resurrection. Each generation has to pass the word on to the next generation as you would pass, as runners pass an Olympic torch. And somewhere along the line, the generation that uh, succeeded, the generation that saw the works, didn't get the word. No one proclaimed the truth to them. They did not know the Lord, and as the writer tells us, they fell into idolatry. Then the sons of Israel did the evil. The noun is articulate, and it's a definite noun. The sons of Israel did the evil in the sight of the Lord. What's that? What is the quintessential evil? What is the worst evil that anyone can, can, uh, can do? What? is the evil that leads to all other evils. Well, it's idolatry. They serve the Baals. 
Now, of course, that made, you know, it made sense to serve the Baals in Canaan because that was the culture. Uh, Moses had warned them before, they, before Israel ventured into the land that they would be seduced away from their heartfelt love for him because Baal worship was exceedingly attractive. Gleaming, lascivious gods of the Canaanites looked very, very good. And this generation, after a bit, came to believe, yes, Yahweh is, uh, you know, he works all right on Sunday, but the rest of the week, or the Sabbath, but the rest of the week belongs to Baal. This wonderful old fertility family, Father Baal and Mother Astarte. The Astartes, as he describes here, are the little uh, figurines of the mother goddess, who the progenitress of the nations, as she's called in the literature. It's terribly lascivious woman who's actually Baal's sister but also his consort. And Baal is the macho Baal, he's called, uh, in the literature, who scatters his seed a thousand times a day is the way he's described. Uh, Incredible immorality in this cult. They played out their, their, the immoral roles of these gods and goddesses on stage in living color. I mean, you, our, our pornography uh, doesn't really compare to what went on in those days. And Israel fell into it because, oh, it looked so good. It looked so good. But the prophet said, that's the evil. That's the problem. The problem is not on the military field. It's in the heart. It's interesting to see how Israel's prophets dealt with idolatry. They took idolatry very, very seriously, but they poked fun at idols. How absurd. You you would invest your whole life in this thing that you have to wax and paint and maintain and whose feet you have to nail to the floor. You know, come on. You've got to be kidding they, they poked fun at idols and made up whimsical names for them. Gilalim, they call them. It's uh, based on the Hebrew word galal that scholars say means little rolled up balls of dung. That's the term that they used for uh, for, for idols. C- come on now. It's, you know, give me a break. You're going you're gonna to invest your whole life in something that's designed for obsolescence? You know, some piece of heavy metal you have to tote from place to place. You're, you're going to invest your whole, you know, Gilul, the prophets would say. That was their attitude toward idols. Now, Israel's idolatry is very uh, simple and straightforward. You know, they danced around the, the Baal uh, symbols, and they flirted with the lovely ladies of Astarte and you could identify idolatry in Israel. Our idolatry is a lot more subtle, a lot more difficult to pin down, but it's still the same thing. It's the false centering of ourselves. It's centering ourselves on anything other than God. Now, Israel's first commandment said, you should not have any other gods before me. That was a starting point for all morality. And uh, our apostle John, the elder John, in his little book, 1 John, the last two verses says, there's only one authentic God, and that's Jesus Christ, our Lord. Little children, he says, keep yourself from idols. Idolatry is still against the law. Um, Idolatry can be um, the worship of something very, very sinful, something very wrong. 
It can also be the worship of something very, very, very good. Or, or morally neutral, we'll put it that way. It can be the pursuit of one's uh, career, certainly a noble enterprise. Uh, it can be the pursuit of marriage. It can be uh, the desire to have children. It, uh, it can be the pursuit of the body beautiful. There are some people that invest their whole lives into uh, getting in shape and being more shapely and eating the right things and exercising the right way, and that becomes the, the end all of, of life. That's the, that's the reason for being. Do you want to know what your idols are? Jesus said it's what you think about. He said what, what you treasure is where your heart is. What's the first thing we think about when we get up in the morning? What, 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 are our, you know, what about our reveries through the day? What's the last thing we focus on before we hit the sack at night? That's your idol. That's your idol. What does your mind shift to when it's in neutral? That's your idol. Can be something very, very wrong, can be something very, very neutral. Nevertheless, if that becomes the center of our life, uh, the end all and be all of life, then that's it's become our idol. And uh, the problem is our idols don't satisfy, they don't come through, they never do. I was listening to a tape the other day by a, a psychologist who's been here and has spoken to our single group and mentioned a young woman, young high school woman, that came into his office for counsel. And the thing that struck him about her was that she was exceedingly beautiful, young woman. The second thing he noticed is that she was very, very poised, very self-confident. Remarkably so. In the course of their discussion, he, uh, he did not know why she had come in. He said to her, you know, I'm really astonished at the amount of self-control uh, and poise that you have. He said, where does that come from? She smiled. She said, I'm pretty. He said, oh, I'm so sorry. She said, what, what do you mean you're sorry? And he said, because you won't always be pretty. Someday you'll be old and ugly. And what will you do then? See, that's where the rubber meets the road. All of our idols, in the end, leave us desolated and empty. Life becomes less and less meaningful. G.K. Chesterton said that despair does not come when the evil things in life do not satisfy. It comes when the good things in life do not satisfy. So that's when children start to tease the cat. That's when we start doing little mean, malicious things just because there's nothing else to do. That's the problem with idolatry. Now, uh, let me tell you how uh, God acted to deliver Israel from their idolatry. Verse 14. He gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies. Do you know how God deals with our idolatry? He lets us have it. He lets us continue to worship the things that we worship until they nearly destroy us. That's what Romans describes, what Paul describes in the book of Romans is the wrath of God. The wrath of God is not God sending light bolt, lightning bolts out of sky like Zeus and striking us down. He rather just takes his hands off of us and lets us go. If we make a 
an idol out of our career, then he'll let us pursue our career until we become absolutely empty. And we get to the top of Fat Cat Hill and and we make our final transaction that puts us over the top and then we say, what now? What do I do for an encore? I heard an interesting interview with Ted Turner of Turner Broadcasting last year with uh, Barbara Walters. He said to her at the end of the interview, success is an empty bag. But he says, you never know it until you get there. And, and that's why God lets some of us become successes. He lets us pursue our careers or our successes. He lets us pursue legitimate goals even until we come to the end of ourselves and we discover how empty and meaningless and profitless they really are. Or if it's some sinful thing that we're doing, some blatantly sinful thing we're doing, he just lets us do more sin. As Augustine said, sin is the punishment for sin. He takes his hands off of us, and after a while, our sins become our, our master. We're enslaved to them, and they become obsessions and compulsions, and we find ourselves doing things that we never wanted to do necessarily. We do them not because we, even because we want to, because we have to. We have to. It lets us go. Until we come to the end of ourselves, like the prodigal, who ends up in the in the pig pen, and suddenly he recalls uh, the father's house and the love of the father, and and the waiting father who's there with with open arms. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. Look at verse. Um, let's see, where is it? Verse eighteen. The Lord was moved to pity by Israel's groaning. Because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. And then going back to verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. As Petra says, you may take a thousand steps away from the Lord, but it only takes one step to return. And I'll tell you why that's true. It's because he's running with you. The prophet's favorite word for repentance was the Hebrew word shuv. Shuvi, shuvi, they said, return, return, which simply means to turn around, that's all. And when you turn around, when you stop running and you turn around, guess who you find standing right there? Our Lord. See, he, has, he pursues us into our idolatry. He pursues us into our darkness. And when we make that heartfelt decision to rend our hearts and to open them up to to the Lord we discover he's right there ready to step in and take over and, and remake our lives and rebuild us and make us everything that, that we've ever wanted to be. I think of that uh, wonderful old hymn, Wonderful Grace of our, of our Loving Lord, Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the cross was spilt. Grace, grace. Matchless grace. Grace that exceeds our sin and our... As I've said so many times, you cannot out-sin the grace of God. He came to seek and to save the lost. So the minute we come to the end of ourselves and we turn around, he's there with open arms waiting for us. 
As John Donne put it, Though thou with clouds of anger do disguise thy face, yet through that mask I know those eyes, which though they turn away sometimes, they never will despise. He never despises us. Oh, he hates our sin. Not because he's made up some silly list of sins that he prescribed, but because he knows what sin will do to us. He knows what idolatry will do to us. He wants something much better for us. And uh, he steps into our, into our darkness in order to re- reclaim us. Now, I want you to notice something. I just have a moment or two left, but... Uh, Something very interesting about the book of Judges. And here's where I depart somewhat from most of the other commentators. And I ask you to take this with a very large box of iodized salt. But, verse 19, it came about when the judge died that they could they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers. In following other gods to serve them and bow down to them, nor did they... Uh, for they did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. In other words, things went from bad to worse. The judges could not deliver them. You know why? Because they were themselves corrupted by their culture. We will read the stories of these, uh, these men... And I use that word advisedly at this point. I'll tell you why in a moment. We will read the stories of these men, and we will discover that they are not heroes at all. They are anti-heroes. They were all, every one of them, fatally flawed. Gideon sold his whole family down the river into idolatry in the end. Jephthah was an opportunist and sacrificed his daughter. He was guilty of child sacrifice. The um, commentators try to cover up that gory fact, but it's right there in the text. It's unavoidable. Samson is one of the most pathetic figures you would ever read uh, about. His strengths in the end finally destroyed him. As I said uh, a moment ago, I I used used the word men advisedly because the men in this story right across the board, come across as real losers. It's the women who are extolled. In in almost every case, the women hit the long ball. And the prize of the whole bunch is that dear woman, Ruth, whose story belongs in this period. She's described by one commentator as a lovely lily in a stagnant pond. What a wonderful description of her. And we're going to, although she does not appear in the book of Judges, she, her story is a part of the book of Judges because it, her life was played out in this, the theater, the culture uh, that we find here in, in the book. Not one of the judges could deliver. They were all losers in every sense of the word. Though, interestingly enough, four of them occur in Hebrews' Hall of Fame, and we'll talk about those four primarily as we come to them and see why they were there. Now, I want you to look at the end of the book, and I want to leave you with this. One of the most startling statements in this book. Repeated four times. Clearly, it's the theme of the book. Clearly, it's the reason why the book was written. 
Chapters 17 through 21 are an appendix. They start with this uh, case of uh, kind of a clergy scandal, the likes of which the author himself cannot believe. Moses' grandson was involved in idolatry. It was a you know, a fact so uh, shocking that the scribes again tried to cover it. They actually, this is one place, probably one of the one or two places in the Old Testament where the scribes deliberately changed the text because they could not believe that Moses' grandson would be involved in a sin of, of this nature. What follows is uh, just one horrible event after another: homosexuality, murder, gang rape. Uh, child abuse, spousal abuse, just some really awful stuff going on. Four times in this appendix. He refers to the fact that there was no king in Israel. 17.6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did did what was right in his own eyes. Right in this case being wrong in God's eyes. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king of Israel. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now it came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. Now turn to the last verse in the book. This is the bottom line. This is where he's been moving us all the way through the book. Verse 25. In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Murder, adultery, homosexuality, violence, crime. Every sin uh, that uh, we see around us today is um, contained in this book because everybody thought it was all right. It was okay. And the reason was because there was no king in Israel. We say, oh, I know what he's talking about. This book is preparation for David, and many scholars take it that way. And certainly if it was written during the time of David, it would be a very powerful defense of his authority as, as a king. David was a man after God's own heart. He was the greatest of all the Judean kings, no question about it. But uh, he was also an adulterer and a murderer and a liar and an opportunist. Solomon came along and he was seduced by his wives into idolatry. Jeroboam, who's the third of the Judean kings, split the nation in two. Um, On and on it goes, all the way through the the kings, the Judean kings, till you get right down to the exile. There was not one decent king among them. And I say, what did the author have in mind? Well, he was not thinking of David or Solomon or Abijah or Jeroboam or Rehoboam. He wasn't thinking of any of those kings. He was thinking of that once and coming king, our Lord Jesus, the Messiah. C.S. Lewis once said, the whole Old Testament, the leaves of the Old Testament rustle with the hope of that coming king. And and, uh, the leaves of Judges rustle with that same hope. One of these days a king will come who's going to set everything right. He's the judge par excellence. He's the one on the side of the, of the uh, little person, the one who looks after the downtrodden and the weak and those that can't look after them themselves. Years ago, when I was in school, I uh, took a class 
from a wonderful Israeli scholar. Her name is Sarah Yaffet. She was an Israeli. She was. She's a teacher at the University of uh, Hebrew University now, and she was in an exchange program. And I sat under her in a class in which we went through the, the post-exilic books: Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Chronicles. Her specialty was the book of Chronicles, and she was talking about it one day. She said to us, "It's a very small class." There were only six or seven of us in the class. I was the only Christian in the group. The rest of them were either Jews or American Jews or Israelis. She said to me, why do you suppose the book of Chronicles was written? I said, to trace the history of the Judean kings? She said, no, it wasn't. It was written to prepare Israel for the coming of Messiah. The book of Chronicles is the last book that was written in the Old Testament. No question about that. The last of the books. If you read through it carefully, you'll see that what the author does, maybe an Ezra, but whoever wrote it, expunged all the bad stuff from the lives of the Judean kings, paints a, a beautiful picture of the kings of Judah who could do no wrong. And she said, all of that is there to arouse in Israel an expectation of the coming of the, of the king who could do no wrong. And she said, how does Chronicles begin? And I said, with a long genealogy. She said, how does your book of Matthew begin? I said, with a long genealogy. She said, Matthew was very clever, wasn't he? Now, she doesn't believe in our Messiah, but she clearly saw that all the Old Testament is trending toward that day when Messiah would come. I think that's the whole point of Judges. Men and women will always disappoint you. Try Jesus. There's no other king who can deliver. Let's pray. If we want to know our idols, we need to know our predominant thoughts. Jesus said, where where our treasure is, is where our mind, our heart will be. What is my treasure? What's yours? What do we treasure more than anything else? That's our idol. This is a time, I think, to search our hearts and ask ourselves what we've been building our lives upon. God wants to spare us from the emptiness, the hollow life, that comes from trying to satisfy ourselves with anything other than our Lord Jesus. There is no other God. He is the authentic God. If you've not yet found that out, I would urge you to open your heart up to Him. Say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Into my life. Into my life, Lord Jesus, come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. No one is too far out or too far gone. He's been chasing you through your, your entire life, beckoning, calling. You know, that's where those quiet urges, that small voice that keeps telling us there must be something more. That's where that comes from. That's his voice.
when you respond to his love. And for those of us who know him, there are those times when we have been seduced by our culture into believing that there is something other than God that will satisfy us. Our Lord who loves us more than we even love ourselves assures us that that cannot be. No other name, no other person, no other place, no other thing can satisfy us like Jesus. Will you rend your heart and return to him? Father, we, we owe our entire lives to you. Every breath that we take, every thought that we think, every move that we make comes from you. You could take our lives at any moment. Simply by withdrawing your spirit, we would come to the end of ourselves. But you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We ask that your spirit would continue to work in our hearts to open us up to your love, to convince us of our sin, your righteousness, the need for turning. And then we thank you that as you come into our lives, you begin to reconstruct us along the lines that you've always envisioned and make us into the person that, that we've always dreamed that we would be. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh,